tell God blind me. And if I lie me, I tell God blind me. And if I lie me, I tell God blind me. Got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have Leila Lalami here in the studio with me. Um, I should say we're taping this program. It's April 5th, 2016. Um, on the table, uh, we've got Leila's book, The Moore's Account. Welcome, Layla. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And for coming to the University of Michigan. You're here to give the talk mm-hmm. um, at Rackham this evening. Um, the Jill S. Harris Memorial Lecture. Yes, um, it sounds very fancy. It does. It, does. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely makes me think. Well, well, Jill, I'm glad you know you've you've made this this lecture yes. you know happen <laughs> for everyone. Um, the title of the talk: Muslims Muslims in America: A Forgotten History and Evening with Layla Lalami. Um, that will already have happened, everyone, by the time that you get to hear the program, but hopefully many of you got a chance to go and see Layla speak and talk here. Um, without further ado, I'll read Layla's bio and the latest copy uh, printing of the Moore's account out with Vintage Anchor Books. And many thanks, I should say, to Angie Venezia uh, for sending a copy of the book our way. Layla Lalami is the author of the short story collection Hope and Other Dangerous Pursuits, which was a finalist for the Oregon Book Award, and the novel Secret Sun, which was on the Orange Prize long list. Her essays and opinion pieces have appeared in the LA Times, the Washington Post, the Nation, the Guardian, and the New York Times, and in many anthologies. She's the recipient of a British Council Fellowship, a Fulbright Fellowship, a Lannan Residency Fellowship, and is an Associate Professor of Creative Writing at the University of California at Riverside. She lives in Los Angeles and is indeed a living writer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Layla, thanks for being here. Um, Let's let's talk a little bit about the book on the table with us first, um, Mm -hmm. and then maybe talk a bit about um, the talk that you'll you'll be here to to give later. Um, So the origin story, how did this, um, how did, were you doing research um, and you you were shocked at the omission of a certain person's story within the research or did you have, how did this story start to happen for you? It was actually quite serendipitous. I wasn't thinking at all about uh, fiction at the time that, um, that I had the idea for this book. My second book, Secrets and had come out. It was the fall of 2009 and I was kind of in that fallow period in between books. And um, I was writing book reviews, and uh, I was assigned a book on Muslim immigration to Europe, uh, which is a very hot topic right now, as you you know, in the wake of um, all these events that we've been seeing. And um, in the process of reading that book and trying to write a response to it, I ended up reading a book about Moorish Spain, which has 
not really much to do with it. But the but the idea, so the book is called We Are All Moors. It's by the Moroccan scholar Anwar Majid. And the idea behind it is that the image that we have today about uh, immigrants or anybody who's a foreigner coming into the country stems from that uh, image of the Moor in 16th century Spain. So it's a really interesting argument. And, you know, so as I was reading this book, a lot of really fascinating uh, historical details in it. But one that stood out to me at the time was when uh, Anwar mentioned that um, Islam uh, um, had come to America before America was a nation, which I knew. But but more specifically, he said that the but not, first... But not many people do know. Right. That. I don't think that is right. common knowledge, right. actually. So that's right. important. Yeah. But, but what was interesting was that he mentioned that the first black explorer of America was a Moroccan slave, a Muslim slave. And I thought, well, would you mean first a black explorer of America? Because that sounds like a pretty big deal. And I was born in Morocco, I was raised in Morocco. Um, you even and, planned to return after school to uh, yes, Morocco. That's correct. But then you f- fell in love, oh, right? And, and other, other stories. <laughs> and this is the sappy portion of the story. <laughs> At least for the first quarter. Yes. We'll find something else yes. for the second. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that's how it began. I thought, well, wait a minute, how come I haven't heard about this guy? It seems like a pretty big deal. And and I would have remembered him if he had been taught in any of our history books, or indeed, if he had been in in any of America's history books, because one of the things, I was an English major in Morocco as an undergrad. And uh, as part of uh, the English major, you take uh, British history and American history. And I don't remember this guy. And so, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to read more about him. And so, I went and got this book called Chronicle of the Narvaez Expedition because he was a part of the Narvaez Expedition. And it was in the process of reading this very slim book, which is actually part of the Penguin Classics series, that I then realized the extent of the historical erasure that had taken place. Because this black explorer, whom the Spaniards referred to as Estebanico, was actually only one of four survivors of that expedition. And uh, together, these these four survivors became the very first foreigners to cross North America on foot um, and to live among indigenous people. So it had this incredible uh, epic story. But when they were eventually found almost a decade later and brought to Mexico City and asked for a testimony about their travels, um, the only uh, testimony testimony that was recorded was that of the Spanish, uh, or they were all noblemen, as it happens, of the Spanish noblemen, uh, but not the testimony of this Moroccan slave. And even in the book by Cabeza de Vaca, he is mentioned about a dozen times, half of them by name, and the other half, he is mentioned as either El Negro or uh, uh, El Moro or the slave. Uh, And so he's he's mentioned by reference to his um, social position, if you will. Um, And this despite the fact that he learned indigenous languages and essentially became the de facto translator for them. And I thought, well, this is an incredibly powerful position to be in the position of a translator. And yet in the actual process of writing history, all that power gets stripped and his his version of what happened is not even recorded. And that struck me as something that was really full of narrative possibilities that would make a really good novel. What if what if we heard the story, but from the point of view of the one survivor whose testimony was never recorded? So it was really sort of a, like almost like a thought experiment. Like what would happen if we told the story from this perspective? And I thought it might be a fun 
a fun thing to do. And then, of course, <laughs> about three years down or four years down into it, you're like, well, maybe that wasn't so much fun. <laughs> so, but it took about five years to write the book. Uh, and it took, obviously, I had to do a lot of research about the Narvaz expedition. And, and, and I can talk more about that, but I, I want to give you an opportunity to sort of uh, tell me if, if you have any questions. Oh, oh yes. Well, <laughs> this is... Just keep going, oh, Layla. <laughs> I could, I could. Um, well, I think it is so interesting that this omission, where it even seems like he has like a, a line at the end, that they, they, the other people were noblemen. Mm-hmm. He was his position. He had. He was not born into slavery mm-hmm. to in order to. Well, I do have um, a question about because this is historical fiction, mm-hmm. and you did lots of research, mm-hmm. but his life that. Is that part an imagined historical fiction that you give to him, his backstory? Right. So so in the process of writing this novel, um, all of the basic facts are true. There was a Narvaez expedition. It did leave Spain in 1527. It did land in Florida in April 1528, uh, near what is now Tampa Bay. And indeed, out of the 300 survivors, uh, 300, I'm sorry, 300 uh uh, men who went inland looking for gold, only four survived. All of that is true. So the broad facts are all well, true to the extent that we know it to be. Know it to be <laughs> true, which is that through, someone through, through Cab- it. yeah through right. Cabeza de Vaca's relation of this expedition. But everything about the character of Estebanico slash Mustafa, everything about his life, his birth, how he ended up in slavery, who was his original master, how he ended up being a part of the expedition, his life after, during, all of that is the work of imagination. Um, And part of the reason for that is that at the end of Cabeza de Vaca's book, he gives sort of like a mini biography about each of the four survivors. And Cabeza de Vaca himself being the author, we know a lot about him just because he wrote the book about the Narvaez expedition. So we kind of know him through his writing. Uh, the other two noblemen, we also know we get a little bit of biography about them. Uh, and they also appear elsewhere in other um historical documents of the era. Uh, But all we know about Estebanico is just this one line, which is that he is an Arabic-speaking black man, a native of Azamor. And Azamor is a small town, which is about 60 miles south of Casablanca on the Atlantic coast. Um, So almost straight across from Florida. (laughs) Um, And and then when you you have to write a historical novel, and this is the only... um, the only fact, and even that, there are people who might dispute even that fact. Um, so when you have all that fact, the only the only thing you can do is rely on your imagination. And there are certain constraints that come with writing historical fiction. So, for example, since the conceit of the book, the whole idea I had for the book is that he this is his version of what happened, and it takes the form of a medieval travelogue. So it's the it's like an Arabic travelogue, which were common at, at that time. Um, I knew that he had to have had some sort of education that he knew how to read and write. So a lot of things were, were by process. And I also knew by process of deduction. And I also knew that conquest in general is a young person's game. Nobody lands wanting to conquer another person's territory at 70 years of age. So, of course, you have to imagine that this man was probably between 25 and 35 years old. So I placed him at about 30 at the time that he landed. Um 
So there were certain things that I was able to sort of just deduct from from the that one sentence. Of, yeah, <laughs> from the elements of the story, and then but everything else was built around that, like what drove him. Um, and there, it was an opportunity for me to sort of explore a lot of. Um, a lot of themes. So, for example, at the time that this expedition lands, there is only one driving force behind it, which is that Narvaez, the man who leads it, is desperate, just desperate to find gold. And I can talk about why, what drives him, because he is a fascinating character in his own right. Um, but they're desperate to find gold. And this is at a time when um, capitalism as a form of uh, as, as an economic model is just barely sort of starting. Uh, before that, um, you know, a lot of these men had lands and could depend on the fact that they were sort of landed, <laughs> had landed fortunes. Um, but this is at a time when that is starting to change and they need to find um, new ways of making money. And so some of them then invest their money in these expeditions in the hope that they will end up even richer. So it's like kind of the beginning of that era and the beginning of uh, even the slave trade as we know it in America, not not as not slavery as an institution which has existed for a long time, but slavery as it was practiced in America. That's also the beginning of it at that time. So it's just a very interesting historical moment um, and a lot to explore uh, in it. And you lived within it for about four to five years, you said. Mm -hmm. And I can see as you speak about it, Layla, that you inhabit it. Like you go, like mm -hmm. I can see it, you go into the images in mm -hmm. your, your mind mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, is it something that's still occupying you now in your current projects? Or how do you move? Be you know what? Let's let's talk a little bit about that. We'll go for a break and yes. we'll be back and Sounds we'll talk good. about that. Today on the program, Layla Lalami is here. Her book on the table, The Moore's Account. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got text behind the glass. We'll be right back. Walking through it. Walking on water. Then I see you. Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Layla Lalami is here. The Moore's account. Um, we'll hear a little bit from the novel um, coming up. At the break, we were talking about the process of writing this and, and the writer in the writer's mind for this time period mm -hmm. that you're inhabiting this, <laughs> this historical time period, really. And on the, you're sort of a, a detective as well. Yeah, it's. I have to say, it's a, it's enormous fun, um, and also because 
um, as you research, you discover, every time you discover something new. I mean, I remember, for example, when I started researching Spanish exploration of America, and I discovered that that every time, every Spanish expedition that landed in the Americas had to read a document called um, the Requerimiento, which is a legal justification drafted in Spain um, by by a jurist, and whose purpose was basically to inform the natives or indigenous people that they were now henceforth subjects of his holy imperial <laughs> to, majesty. To inform them. Yeah. Just like you sort of dock you pull into the land and and then the document is pulled um and is read and and it informs them that they are subjects of his holy imperial majesty and that they must worship god uh and that they are henceforth uh christians essentially and that they have to obey the pope and his representatives so so that document every spanish expedition that landed in the americas had to have it and had to read it uh and of course it's in Latin, and indigenous people do not speak Latin or did not speak Latin at the time. So the point of it was not really so much to inform them. It was more to protect the invaders, to protect the Spaniards from any legal claim, but also from any moral claim, so that they would not feel that what they were doing was in any way immoral. They were merely carrying out the will of the Pope and the will of the King. Um, so... When I discovered that that document existed and that it was read in every expedition, and that was how you formally claim the land for the king, at the time that I was reading this, um, in the background, in the news, there was this discussion about, I don't know if you remember this, this was a few years ago, about the torture memos that George W. Bush had asked his uh, one of his attorneys to draft John Yu. Um, so the point of the torture memos was to say that what the United States was practicing on enemy combatants was not torture, even though these men were held in stress positions or were waterboarded and all of that. So to Jeez, read about that connection the, there. Yeah. So so to read about a document. So to read about a document in in the 1500s, whose purpose was to protect these invaders, and then to hear about the torture memos where the United States actually went to Iraq under false pretenses, invaded that country, created a big mess, and then said that what they did to to uh, insurgents or enemy combatants in their prisons was not torture. To me, the parallel was just so stunning. Um, and so in a way... It's very easy when you're reading about the 16th century and to see these men with their plumed helmets and, and their armor and their chainmail and their horses and their ridiculous documents claiming in Latin that, that these people have are now subjects of his holy imperial majesty. It all seems ludicrous. But at the same time, it also feels contemporary. It is it also of our time. Yeah, it, it feels no longer historical. It feels... Human. Uh, yeah, it feels like it's ever-present, that this is just part of our human experience and that there's something sort of obdurate about our human nature that we are condemned to sort of repeat these or things. Or the will to dominate yeah. and to somehow release self mm -hmm. from accountability exactly. of that will. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Um, <laughs> And that connects to this idea of, because here, the Moore's account is is a historical fiction where you're imagining the story mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And then then even by putting this, this character, it, it, it's in his voice, it becomes a story, right? Then what you've just talked about is how the explorers come over on their ships, and then they land and they create a new story. Mm -hmm. Like, this is, I'm creating the story. 
right. making something their own facts become what the record shows. Right. And and actually, when I set out to write that book, it was really out of, as I said, just this sort of noticing this narrative possibility in this quote. It's an alternative <laughs> history. How cool would that be? But as I started working on, on the book, um, it really made me challenge everything that I thought I knew about history and, in, and everything I thought I knew about how history is written. For example, in, in the Narvaez expedition, we consider everything that Cabeza de Vaca told us about what happened, the fact that, for example, Narvaez had decided to send the ships away. The fact that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right, that, that we call these facts. But all we have for them is what Cabeza de Vaca has told us. But because that book was published in Spain in 1542, and upon that book, a lot of historians have based their scholarship of the Narvaez expedition. We consider that to be history, to be factual history. But he's just one of four survivors, and that's just his perspective about it. And Narvaez died. He wasn't around to say, wait a minute, I actually wasn't the one who made that terrible decision. Oh. That let us in there. Oh, when it was published, he yeah. was already gone. Yeah. So, so, so you understand that 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 even the original testimony of of the three Spanish noblemen got lost, quote unquote, in 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 uh, in a sh- in in the ship. Uh, and actually, Cabeza de Vaca had been in charge of it. So, really, the only document we have is 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 that document that was published in Spain by him in 1542, and so. This book really taught me that history is an argument, and um, you're never going to find a historical period or historical event that all parties are going to agree about has happened in the same way. Um, So facts, yes, there was an expedition. And yes, there were only four survivors. Those are facts. But what actually happened and what we consider history, that's more open to interpretation because history contains within it a story and story within it contains a perspective. Um, And so so what we think we know about the Narvaez expedition really is Cabeza de Vaca's perspective on it. Mm-hmm. And how history also has the story mm-hmm. within the word itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course... And in always... fact, the two words are etymologically, they come from the same root. And, and only, I believe, in, in um, the, the 1500s did they separate and one became solely um, a word used to refer to fiction and the other one became solely a word to refer to historical events. With, with the, yeah, mm-hmm. the facts is we're saying mm-hmm. they, they exist. I know. And of course, it's no accident. It feels like that it's his story as yeah. the breakdown as right. well right. as we look through uh, language. It's wonderful. And it's also wonderful that it's transforming all the time too. the thing to think about it. The stories that we tell ourselves, language itself, it isn't a static thing. No. And and um, so so one of the things that was really kind of shocking when I started doing uh, research for this book, for example, among many things, is that indigenous people were routinely referred to as savages in the um, in the literature of the era, and that's because they were not Christian. And there was, in fact, a debate about whether they had souls, and the Pope uh, had to rule about that at some point, a couple of decades into into the first contact. So Columbus landed in 1492, but the Pope's ruling that indigenous people had souls did not come in 1492. It came some decades later. So in between, they were not considered even people with souls. Um, 
And so then the question becomes, if you are a historical novelist, what do you do with that? Do you use that word? And if you use it, how do you use it? Um, and I did not want to write a book that felt like it was written from the 21st century about the 16th century. I very much wanted it to be a book written from the perspective of a 16th century Moroccan slave. That's what I set out to do. And so I had to use um, sort of like tricks in the way in which I, how I used the word to sort of create dramatic irony. So, for example, in the beginning of the book, um, the Spaniards do refer to indigenous people as savages, but as you discover as the story proceeds, and this is actually something that we see in Cabeza de Vaca as well, although he doesn't draw that connection, um, they resort at one point to cannibalism. The Spaniards do. Uh, and it's highly ironic because one of their greatest fears about indigenous peoples, one of the stereotypes they had about them was that those people are cannibals, right. right? And that's all of this goes in justifying why they're being treated in the way that they're being treated. So so it's kind of by doing it this way um, and by using other other elements in the story to sort of put the lie to the act to the idea that these people were savages, then I felt like it was okay to 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 stay true to how the Spaniards really did think about uh, indigenous people while at the same time finding ways within the story to to make it clear you those know, that, lines yeah, yeah. yes um, because in a way for doing that it would be the language of the savages would then be given in the dialogue mm -hmm. of exactly one of the noblemen exactly. or so exactly but then um estebanico mm -hmm. he would not be well because he himself is a slave you yes. see and so he's neither he's neither a spanish nobleman nor a savage he's somewhere in between and so in when we are in the narrative text that word does not appear it appears in dialogue you know in reference uh, to indigenous people. But it's interesting. I think that you make the choice for his character, Estabanico, as um, to not make him a total innocent. Right. Like in his past, he was a merchant. He yes. was a trader. Yes. He traded and he sold three people. He, yeah, sold he was a slave merchant himself. And I, I wanted to do that because I did not want him to be a victim. I wanted him to... He's the hero of the story. He has his own agency, but at the same time, he's not. And and yes, um, you know, if you want to simplify that story, yes, you have invaders and you have people who are you have conquerors and you have conquered. But it's actually much more complex than that. And I because it's more complex. I wanted him to have a sort of less than savory story uh, backstory. Um, and as when he lands and starts to interact with indigenous people, the balance of power shifts within about a year. And the conquerors now suddenly depend for their survival, for their for their for their food, for everything. They depend on the indigenous people. And indigenous people also had a system of um, 
uh, servitude also. And so these men become slaves slash servants to indigenous people. So the tables are turned. Uh, and so that's what I mean when I say that it's a complex story. While that there is this great evil of Spanish conquest, the indigenous people were not simply bystanders to their own history or silent witnesses to it. They, um, they resisted in in all the ways that they could and there were times when they collaborated or they they used Spaniards against one another so it's it's a really interesting moment in in history and how how did you loose yourself from it then what do you mean how so how do you go beyond it like what's your next story going to be <laughs> you mean after the moors account yes oh yeah. Well, that's the thing. Remember when I mentioned the fallow period in between books? I'm kind of right now sort of circling a couple of stories. And, and it's that, this is the moment where you're afraid. You're, you're like, you want to commit, but you're, you're not quite ready. <laughs> you're you know, sort of, you're flirting, a, a five, but you're not quite ready to commit. It's a five-year relationship. Yes, exactly. So. exactly. Uh, do you think it might, again, will you re-enter the historical fiction genre a framework or what? possibly although not in the 16th century if i do it'll be much more recent probably in the early parts of the 20th century there's there's a there's a couple of events that i think would make for a really good 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 story but and when when the, when you're walking around do these stories present themselves or is it when you're looking at that like how how if some of these oh. and do you have a little writer's notebook where you're like oh, fragments I have many. oh i have many writers <laughs> yeah well, basically, to to write a novel is to have a mind that runs on two tracks. There's a mind that is with you right now at the moment, and I'm talking to you. Um, but then there's another track that almost never stops. Like, I only press pause on it when I'm forced to interact with other human beings. But the rest of the time, it's constantly on. And um, I live, it really is almost feels like being inhabited by ghosts it's very it's very very strange and i'm constantly thinking about it living in the world of that novel and being in it and then when life demands my attention i press pause and go deal with life so it's just it it's it's very hard to explain but that 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 that's how that's how it is um as far as imagining it and as far as of course the notebooks because i write fiction and nonfiction, i maintain different notebooks for fiction and and nonfiction. Yeah. Let's talk more about that. We'll yeah, take sure. a short break. Today on Living Writers, Leila Lalami is here. The book on the table, The Moore's Account. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. I'm not a man of God. 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers today. Layla Lalami is here. Um, and text chose some songs for us. And Layla, I can see that you're a <laughs> little bit of dancing in Prade here <laughs> down in the, the basement of the Student Activity Center. <laughs> um, yeah, this music, like you were, you were saying. Oh, no, air. no. I was just noticing because... Um, so the the sort of um, string instrument, or one of the ones that is being used in 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 that song, is called the gimbri, and it's kind of I remember trying to buy one in Morocco the last time I was there. Really? So my, yeah. My daughter is plays the violin, and I got all excited because I thought, oh, I'm gonna get her a gimbri, and and of course, you know, so we had to go from store to store to find one that was the right size, and. Um, Anyway, so it's a really interesting instrument. It has this very sort of almost like a bass. It's a very deep sound, and that's what those guys are playing. Um, and you found one for your daughter, I, so you're uh, successful. I did, I did yeah. Oh, and the book but, but is, she doesn't play it. <laughs> well, not she, yet, or well, she played. She played Seven Nation Army on it, which I thought was pretty good. And then she promptly lost interest and went back to the violin. So we'll see. <laughs> she's little, so she. I mean, she's she's. She has time. There's time. <laughs> and you've dedicated the book, The Moore's Account, to your daughter. Mm-hmm. Why is that? <laughs> is it self-evident? Because she demanded it. <laughs> because she demanded it. In fact, she's like, your next book should also be dedicated to me. If it were up to her, every book should be de- <laughs> dedicated to her. My daughter is very interesting. My daughter has um, signs her email with her name, and then the signature goes, The Great and Powerful. <laughs> so so she demands that, that a book is dedicated I, I must comply but all joking aside no I um, when you there's there's so much um, that goes into the writing of the book remember when I talked about how you inhabit these two tracks and so by necessity it involves a lot of time um, alone and that means sacrificing a lot of family time or, or you know like I have to have every day I have to have a couple of hours alone. I can't not have, even if I do nothing, but just stare at the blank page or read a book or just be alone for a couple of hours, I feel like I need that alone time. And so um, I'm, I feel like I'm fortunate that that um, my daughter understands this. And, you know, maybe because she's a musician or a budding musician, she understands this. But uh, um, So I felt like it was only fair that she, she, <laughs> she has the book dedicated to her. The great and powerful. Yeah. <laughs> break Layla we were you were starting to talk we were talking a little bit about the process yes. and, and now you've said you need a couple of hours mm-hmm. at, at least um uh it, well to be sane not necessarily for yeah. the writing process right. itself yeah but I, I yeah I need that time alone every day but but in terms of like the writing process itself which I'm sure is what, you, what you're asking about um one of the things that happened with writing this book is I thought very naively that the two that I would basically research the book and then I would sit down and write it. And sort of grosso modo, that's kind of what happened, but not really. Because even after I researched it and started working on the first draft, there were so many moments when I had to stop and go and research something. Just well, it's be- because you know something, isn't it? You've suddenly discovered you know something in a different way. Yeah, and also you don't realize when you are working on a book, it sounds so great. Oh, I'm going to tell this from the perspective of, of this this slave. Well, give there, some, yes, like, give someone a, a voice yes, who has been voiceless. Yes, that's such a great conceit. Okay, now let's look at the execution. Let's look at some of the challenges. For example, 
Um, every time you set a scene in Florida, uh, Florida is not what in fifteen twenty eight is not what it looks like right now. So every tree, every plant, every flower that you mention has to be native. So you have to so you have to go back and look at uh, databases of native plants. And then when you're revising, making sure that all of your whatever trees you put in any scene, whatever plants you put are native. Could have been there at that time. It could have been there at that time. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, yeah, not just native, but also native to that region of Florida. So you have to have maps also. That's just for the flora. And then for the fauna, um, not only do does every animal has, have to be native, but you are telling the story from the perspective of a character from the old world. That means that if the first time uh, he sees a turkey, the word turkey didn't even enter English until much later through trade. So there, this is the first time. Or alligator. Mm -hmm. right? Alligators, the... that happens in the first chapter, right. So there's no word for it. So he is compelled to describe what the animal looks like. And that's it. There's no word for that animal. So that's another constraint. So in the case of alligator, it's a little bit simpler because it looks so much like a giant lizard. So he says it looks like a giant lizard, and then you get that it's an alligator. But there's other animals also, you know, that, that are native to North America that these, um, these foreigners see for the first time. So how do you describe that world for somebody who's never seen it? Um, so that's for the fauna and the flora. And then, of course, you know, the the... Um, what the men are wearing. I knew nothing about the 16th century. Like, what what, what does a Spanish nobleman in 1528 who lands in Florida, what is he going to wear? What is my character going to wear? What are what do the indigenous people, what are they going to be wearing? So it's a lot of, you know, just very basic um, elements of writing a scene that, that you would take for granted in writing a contemporary novel become challenges when you're writing. Do you um, move through some of those moments but note that you have to think now that we're meeting, for example, a second tribe, mm -hmm. a different group from a different region, how, like, I'll come back to decide how I'm going to differentiate them. Right. And, no, and, and, and this, is an, this is a crucial word, the, the coming back to decide. Like, all writing is a matter of choice. And as you're writing, you're making quick, some, some decisions are very conscious. Like, for example, when I say that every plant has to be native, that's a very conscious decision. But a lot of other decisions are unconscious, and you're making them at every step. Like between, it goes down to just deciding what the next word will be, or how the next sentence will start, but also what this next character is going to say, or what this next character is going to do. So there's a lot of choices that you have to make quickly as you're writing, um, as you're writing, um, and many of them, as I said, are, are subconscious. And even that occurs to me that when you're developing your characters too you're using elements of the scene and the story in that moment to show the reader how they maybe sort of like how they should start feeling about this particular character right i'm thinking of um Nevaith, like Nevaith. this uh -huh. um because he wasn't very good to his brother. Mm -hmm. And so we get to see how he privileges a friendship over his uh, relationship with his own brother, yeah. treats him as weak or so. And then yeah. we start to understand things about the man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so 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 Dorantes is the is the owner of of the main character. So he he he's the he's the sort of master in the massless slave relationship. And um, yeah, he he has a. Uh, a brother who's also on the expedition, but he really is closer to Castillo, his best friend, and kind of just neglects the younger brother until it's too late. So it's, um, 
it's an interesting exploration of sort of like sibling relationship and friendship um, and how the two compare. And so those are elements that you're also conscious of, Mm -hmm. or at least as you're um, imagining, as you're being in that world of your imagination, Mm -hmm. where you're understanding that that's an element element of depth that you want Mm -hmm. to make these characters real. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a lot of, and and none of this, of course, is in the historical record. This is, these are just characters and as they're going through, but just because you're in the process of, you know, conquering this land doesn't mean that any of your private uh, jealousies or your private um, uh, desires, uh, your private ambitions uh, stop. So, so Dorantes has all of this going on, but at the same time, he's kind of in a little bit a rival of Cabeza de Vaca because Cabeza de Vaca has the highest position within the expedition, uh, except for Narvaez himself, who's the governor. So Cabeza de Vaca is the treasurer. His role is to make sure that uh, whatever uh, gold is found, that uh, he will secure the royal fifth. So 20% mm. of it has to be saved for the king. Um, and it's a very powerful position. He's a very learned man, and he's a veteran also. He he has fought in wars. He's a very experienced, very worldly man. So there's a little bit of rivalry there because when these men, if everything goes according to plan and these men find gold and start a new city, each one is going to have a, a particular political position within that new world. So there's a little bit of jockeying uh, for position. There's a little bit of competition. All of that is happening as they are right. trying to conquer. And trying to survive and at trying certain survive. points, yeah. right? And I think it's funny, in the in the early chapters of the book, Leila, you do have like this moment where I think Durantes, I think it's in his perspective, is sort of... Um, riffing on names of people and calls him cabeza de la mono like so like head i think is am i translate like head of a monkey because his his ears stick out but even so what an interesting like you can't make this up like cabeza de la vaca isn't that head of a cow yes it is so that's his name yeah that is his name and it's actually um he he has a very interesting lineage his his grandfather was also quite uh useful to the spanish crown and um and uh, so, 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 so he's a nobleman himself. Um, but Dorantes is in the habit of making up names for everybody, and so to to sort of belittle Cabeza de Vaca, he calls him Cabeza de Mono. Um, names are are kind of an interesting thing yes. in this book because the character whom the others call Estebanico, one of his first act in in writing the book is to tell you what his real name is. And his real name is Mustafa Ibn Muhammad Ibn Abdussalam Az-Zamori. So that's his first name, his father's name, his grandfather's name, and his town. That's how you determine who that person is. Um, And in the course of the book, as we flash back to his life before the expedition, we see how that name is shortened first to Mustafa, and then how when he falls into slavery, he is baptized and named Esteban. And then as he joins the expedition, he becomes Estebanico. So it's the little Stephen, little Esteban. Um, and so in that journey, it's sort of... Um, and and there's a moment in the book when he talks about how names are not incidental. Our names connect to something deeper within us because they can they contain a particular history and a particular set of traditions. And so in the book, um, there are other 
plays like that with with names. And I think this all goes back to uh, history being an argument. Um, you cannot have an argument that does not involve language. Um, so um, every time that we fight about history, we're actually fighting about what to call that thing we are fighting about. So for example, uh, earlier I gave the example of savages versus indigenous people. But you see this even today, uh, to go back to the example when I was talking about the torture memos, um, is it torture or is it enhanced interrogation? Are those insurgents or are they just people who don't want you in their countries? They're, they're, they're fighting for their freedom. Um, so, you know, is this person a terrorist uh, or is this person um, what now the United States now calls a military aged male, which is any male over the age of 13 caught in a war zone that the United States is is striking? So uh, so so this is what I mean by you cannot have an argument about history without having an argument about language. Uh, right. And that goes down all the way to to what we call people, not just things. Right. Immigrant, refugee, right. All of these, right. So, these so, so, if you if you listen, for example, to to the Republicans, they don't even say immigrants; they say illegal aliens. And then, if you look on the other side, people are saying undocumented immigrants. Um, so, so, an illegal alien to one person is an undocumented uh, immig- immigrant to another. To another. So, yeah. <laughs> language, facts, the stories we tell. Yeah. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back um, with more conversation with Layla Lalami today on Living Writers. Her book, On the Table, The Moore's Account. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. T. Hetzel today on Living Writers. Leila Lalami is here. Um, as promised, <laughs> before we run out of time, because I've really been enjoying this conversation with you, Leila, let's, would you mind reading um, from the Moore's account for us? Sure. Uh, I think there was a scene. Because we were um, talking about names. Uh, yes. So let me just see. So this takes place. Um, in Azamor, that little town on uh, the Atlantic coast. Um, and uh, this is when Estebanico or Mustafa uh, is still a free man. And um, 
There has been a huge drought that has essentially decimated the entire town uh, because it has created a famine and uh, a number of people are being enslaved uh, as a result. of This that. is actually heartbreaking in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and also another moment that I feel like connects to our time and thinking about our future, like when things that people count on connected to weather mm-hmm. <laughs> are gone, right? like food sources, water. Oh, no, it um, has it, it has huge. I mean, this this is very relevant, like, for example, with climate change. I see what you're saying. Yeah, because so there's this drought and the first year things, you know, of course, there are no crops and, you know, this affects prices for everything. Uh, but then the second year and the third year of the drought, then things get worse and people are still being taxed because at that time, uh, Asmor had fallen under Portuguese vassalage. So every year they had to pay a tax to the Portuguese and that tax doesn't change. And so people still have to be taxed while they're not actually making any money because there are no, there's no farming uh, to be done. Um, and so... Th- this create the the price of slaves goes down and people are forced to uh, either enslave uh, others or become slaves themselves in order to to pay off uh, those taxes so it's um it's it's there's a chain reaction there that that you could not have imagined if you were only thinking about the drought as uh, an independent thing that happened because on top of that there's also an earthquake that happens not far so it just so creates a wave of refugees yeah. exactly so it's just the number of things that that lead to this particular historical moment and the death of his father because he chooses right. to stop eating so that his younger sons can have the little that right they have his father was already sick and he felt that the food should go to to, to the children because they, they they're still young um so it's just an, an, an all of these things so the 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 what's happening outside is this drought this famine the earthquake in fez in which was one of the biggest earthquakes in that city at that time um and then privately what's happening at home is his father who had been sick dies and sort of the family's kind of just falling apart um so this is that's the setup for this scene and it's told in the in the voice of Mustafa. I made my way through the crowds gathered on the quay. The Umar was tranquil, the fading light of the day turning its water the color of shadows, and the sky was a mackerel gray. Soldiers watched from their posts as servants and slaves carried crates on or off the Portuguese ships. I held on to my twin brother's hands in fear that I might lose them in the flowing multitude of people. I felt as if I had already lost myself. My poor mother had spoken to me that morning with words that still rang in my ears. Mustafa, she had said, no, not this. But it was my fate to discard her advice, just as I had discarded my father's. Mother, I said, there is no other way. There is a way, she said. There is always a way, if you will yourself to dream it. May God forgive me, I thought she spoke soothing nonsense. My eyes must have betrayed my feelings, for she looked at me sadly and began to tell me the story of my birth. This time, she told it to steal her own heart against the pain of losing me. It was easier to let go if she believed that my departure had been ordained. I listened patiently, the way I had always listened to her. But when she was finished, I did not think about the story or its meaning. Instead, I thought about how I had broken my father's heart and how my sacrifice might redeem me, even if he was no longer there to see it. When I finally got up to leave, my mother stood in the doorway, silhouetted by the light from the courtyard. This is the image of her that I still carry with me all these years later. She was still calling my name when I closed the blue door behind me. On the dock, I saw a Fidalgo I recognized. He had been a regular visitor to my uncle's workshop, buying chests or chairs or corner tables for his house in Lisbon. 
Senor, I called. Senor Alfonso. He was a short man with a prominent nose and a tight mouth. He wore a red vest and dark hose tucked inside freshly shined boots, and his right hand rested on the pommel of his sword. I knew exactly the price I could have fetched for each of these items of clothing had they been mine to sell. The vest and hose were made of cotton. They would only interest a clerk or a notary. But the sword would have been worth at least 20 reais. When I realized what I had been doing, I wanted to turn around, but Afonso had already seen me. A hint of surprise lit his eyes. His gaze traveled from me to my twin brothers and then back to me. I think he understood without my saying a word what it was I wanted from him. He did not ask me if I knew what life would be like once the ship crossed the river, once it had left Azamor and traveled along the coast to the land of the Christians. Instead, he asked, Are you sure this is what you want? I looked at my twin brothers. Their hair had started to turn orange and their cheekbones protruded in their, their frightened eyes. They looked at me uncomprehendingly. Yes, I said, I am sure. Then come with me, Afonso said. We followed him across the quay to one of the merchant stations. A bald man, his head as smooth as an egg, stood up. The two Portuguese men shook hands, but the merchant kept his head slightly inclined in a gesture of respect to the captain. They spoke, they spoke in hushed tones for a few moments. Then they both turned to look at us. This one speaks Portuguese, Afonso said, pointing to me. Isso es verdade, the bald man asked me. Sim, I said. Eu trabalhei como o, com o comerciante português. The merchant nodded at Afonso as if to confirm that the good captain had not lied. With a long stick, he prodded the property he was considering. It seemed the muscles were decent and the hands were strong. The eyes appeared healthy. There were no missing teeth. He offered a price. Ten reais. The haggling took a while because I wanted to make sure I would get the best possible price. I agreed to the sale only when it became clear to me that the merchant was on the verge of giving up and that 15 reais was indeed the most he was willing to pay. A flickering candle illuminated the narrow office of the clerk who recorded the sale. Our shadows danced across the wall behind him. Mine, tall and worried, and my two brothers, shorter and thinner than their twelve years of age, warranted, entirely unaware of the proceedings taking place before them. The clerk asked me my name. His missing teeth gave his voice a perversely benevolent tone. Mustafa ibn Muhammad ibn Abdussalam al-Zamuri, I replied, naming myself, my father, my grandfather, and my native town. With deliberately slow movements, the clerk opened his register and dipped his feather into black ink. Mustafa, 15 reais, and thus it was done. Of all the contracts I had signed, this was perhaps the only one that my father could never have imagined me signing, for it traded what should never be traded. It delivered me into the unknown and er erased my father's name. I could not know that this was just the first of many erasures. Thank you, Leila. <clears throat> So there we, in that scene that you read for us, we see the the power of and the loss mm -hmm. related to names. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so interesting because I actually didn't realize the, that it was important that there was a clerk there that was doing the recording mm -hmm. because that would have been, that's what his father had wanted for Mustafa right. to be in the legal trade, to mm -hmm. be the one who was the witness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he does end up in a way being a witness. I and mean, it's interesting yes. because his father is a notary and uh, he records all of the deeds and contracts in the, in the city of Azamor. He's one of the clerks there and his mother, uh, Mustafa's mother is basically a storyteller. She tells him all these stories. So there's sort of this oral tradition and there's sort of this this um, um, more 
um, the oral tradition, which to me is more female, and sort of the male tradition, which is the sort of writing down and wanting to kind of have it down in a contract. And he doesn't listen, listen to either of them. But in the end, really, he does become a witness because he is witnessing this expedition many years later. At this, time, at this point, he has no idea he's going to end up on an expedition. Um, and so he lands in America and he is a witness. He is neither uh, a Spaniard or a conqueror nor an indigenous person or a conquered person. So he's kind of in between. He's in this sort of interloper in this position as an outsider. And he witnesses all these events and writes about them. So in a way, he is kind of doing these things. He does become this storyteller. He does become this recorder, he does become this witness, but in a very roundabout way, not in the way that his parents had um, imagined for him. And through you, he becomes <laughs> the the architect of writing down the story right. here before us. Right. So how about, how did you decide to do the structure, Layla, um, where you're moving? Because we, we start with him, um, we, we meet Mustafa, mm-hmm. um, and then you move between the the, the voyage, the tr- exploration, mm-hmm. and his and, backstory. Yeah. So I knew when, um, when I started working on the story, I... Um, took it from the beginning. So when when the expedition first leaves Spain and um, they they travel across the the Atlantic and a number of things actually happen on on the islands of Hispaniola and Cuba and and this expedition actually was cursed because there was so much that happened long before they even landed in Florida. For example, um, there was a hurricane and they lost a couple of the ships. They had to go and buy more ships. A number of the men deserted because they could get jobs in the in on those islands and didn't need to go risk their lives in Florida for the promise of jobs. So then they had to go and Narvaez had to go and, and, and recruit more men. So a number of things had happened. And, and I felt as I was writing this that it really wasn't going to the heart of the story. And the heart of the story is really quite simple. These men land in Florida and they are looking for a kingdom of gold. And the reason that they are is because Narvaez was actually a contemporary of Cortez. And Cortez had conquered Mexico and had taken Mexico City, which was indeed full of gold and, and, and all of that. And he thought that the same would be happening for him in Florida. And so that's the heart of the story. And I knew it had to begin there. Uh, but because a number of things happen in a story of conquest, not least of which is the fact that uh, indigenous people are coerced in various ways, including torture, to lead these men toward the gold, I felt that there needed to also be a break because it's very hard once you've gone through a scene of coercion or a scene of torture and then to go on to the next one. So you kind of needed a break in between. And I felt also that I wanted this story to only be part of the larger story of Mustafa's life. Um, and so, and I wanted to kind of Why? write about him. Yeah, what drives him to go there and, and who he is and, and, and everything. And so that's why um, the, the story alternates between the story of the conquest and the story of his life before. And it's shaped as stories. So it kind of, this is inspired from sort of the 1001 Nights. So like each chapter is the story of the story of Florida, the story of Asmore, the story of the sale. And so you kind of get, you sort of get the story in bits and pieces going backwards and forwards. Uh, but it, in a way, it gives it 
energy. And at the same time, it allows you to have a little bit of a break from sort of the dark business of of conquering <laughs> Florida. <laughs> so we both laugh a little bit. Yes, well, you, which it is. This, yeah. And looking at sort of the darker sides of yeah. who we are in the human condition. Yeah, yeah. Which is part of everyone, mm-hmm. all peoples, right? You're not just explorers. And mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> but we all are sort of explorers, aren't we, Leila? Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you very much for having me. We'll have to come back again and have another conversation (laughs) because there's more to say, I think. Certainly. Um, uh, And many thanks to the Institute of Humanities and Patrick Tonks for for bringing Leila Lalami here to the University of Michigan's campus for her talk. You've been listening to Living Writers um, today on the program. As I said, Leila Lalami has been here. We've been talking about her book, The Moore's Account. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Welcome to the Daily Sports Report. Eli Sherman here on the mic. I got Leo Blavin across the glass. Busy day in the sports world. Uh, Masters starting up uh, tomorrow. The Par 3 contest was today. A couple of transfers going on in the Michigan basketball sphere. Uh, Greg Hardy, controversial interview on ESPN with Adam Schefter this week. Uh, But before that, we're going to let you know that the baseball team is in action. They're down at... The uh, Wilpon Complex at Ray Fisher Stadium facing off with Eastern Michigan. Last I checked, they were up 1-0. If uh, you're interested in tuning into that, it's being broadcast live on WCBN1 on our YouTube account. Um, and so Michigan, of course, doing a, a solid job early in this season, 21-6, and uh, entering the day and, and certainly looking to clinch a regional spot if they're able to continue that, uh, that success. Anyways, getting to Michigan basketball, Leo, three transfers in, uh, in, in Michigan basketball. The, the one coming into, uh, in on the waiver wire today was Aubrey Dawkins, who's going to be going down to Central, uh, Central Florida to play for his dad, who just got the job there after being fired by Stanford. Um, you know, Beeline had a 45-minute press conference today. A lot of the questions were about Spike, given that there was some controversy over uh, Michigan granting him the transfer and and where they were going to allow him to go. What what um you know what what is in store for 